What brings energy and direction to your life? Maybe it's your police work or your work in another first responder profession. Maybe it's something you do off-duty. What do you do when the energy and direction in your life shifts and something traumatic and catastrophic happens to you? How do you use that energy for the greater good? You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. Five. We need a bear cat. It's up to us. So 133. I need somebody that's got a visual of where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. 42, where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. The one that will bring everyone back. Trouble, we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. I have an officer shot, an officer shot, 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down, suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of The Squad Room, the podcast that helps you, the modern warrior, be the one that brings everybody back. On this show, we help you deconstruct the challenges of our profession, the challenges of the lives that we lead, and how we can be more effective and more resilient and more relevant leaders in our community. Our guest today is a man who I got to meet and spend some time with a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I'll explain how we came to know each other in just a moment. But I want to remind you that to uh, get the show notes for this episode or any other episode, and to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, you can find me at The Squadroom, and our website's thesquadroom.net. I want to talk about some good things going on with our Facebook group. We're exploring, finally, Facebook Live videos and trying to connect with you deeper there and, and develop our connections there through uh, chatting on Facebook Live. I uh, appreciate the people who've engaged so far. And uh, lots of stuff going on as we come into the summer. If you've been listening to the show for uh, a while, you know that I haven't had a sponsor in some time. And I uh, had a great relationship with SB Tactical. Uh, when they were sponsors of the show, and uh, uh, it, uh, trust me, in the in the intervening episodes that I have gone without a sponsor, uh, it's because I've had I've had a lot of companies approach me, but they were all absurdly inappropriate to my audience. They didn't serve our needs or our goals. Uh, they didn't uh, understand our dynamic or understand what we were doing, and they didn't immediately translate to uh, keeping you safer or educating you and making you more effective and better. Uh, they were just they were random companies, clothing companies that had no connection to law enforcement or uh, equipment companies for things. So I've, I've withheld and I've actually turned down a, a lot of sponsorships. But uh, I have a new one, and this one I'm actually really excited about. And um, I want to share with you some a little bit about them now, and I'm going to talk about them a little bit later in the show. Uh, but this episode is sponsored by Hardhead Veterans. It's my belief that any assignment requires access to a high-quality ballistic helmet. Not just a riot helmet, but a ballistic helmet. And whether you're on patrol and responding to an active shooter or a SWAT cop busting down a door or a detective serving a search warrant, you need serious protection for your head. And Hardhead Veterans makes NIJ-compliant helmets at very reasonable prices to help keep you in the fight. 
Now, I want to talk a little bit longer about them a little later on, but you can check them out at hardheadveterans.com. Stay tuned later in the show. I'll go tell you a little bit more about them, and I'll even give you a deal if you're in the market for a ballistic helmet of your own. Most of our agencies aren't buying these for us. We're spending our own money or we're spending our uniform allowance on it, and they're going to give you a deal. Uh, it's a veteran-owned business. They all come out of the special operations community. Uh, they're awesome dudes. They, they donate to cop causes. They have cops on their staff, and they want to make the world safer for us. So thank you to Hardhead Veterans for sponsoring this episode. You'll hear more about them later on. All right, so my guest today is Eric Hodgden. Uh, Eric is uh, and I um, share a mentor in, 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 in common. And if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, well, for a good amount of time anyway, then you've probably heard the episode with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann is a uh, retired Green Beret, spent almost 20 years in the Special Forces uh, with tours in South America and in the Global War on Terror. <clears throat> and uh, Eric and I are both uh, following Scott's work very closely and engaged with him uh, on a level that I'm very grateful for. Uh, we had the opportunity to get in the same room a couple weeks ago and start talking. And I didn't know anything about Eric uh, when we first met, and by the end of our weekend, was like, this guy's got to come on the show. His story that he'll tell you is uh, powerful, and I'll let him tell it, but I would like and ask for your patience as you listen to this, but also uh, this is one where, for those of us in law enforcement, uh, we have a quick ability to close off to the information about it and to the emotions about it. Um, we, surprise to some of you, are quick to judge sometimes. And when you hear his story, if you're not cognizant and if you're not conscious and holding the space as we talk about in the show for yourself to take in what he has to say, you might judge this situation from the cynical cop's view. And our goal when we are talking about being the one, the one to bring everybody back, the one to lead others and to practice your own leadership is to open yourselves to the experiences and the pain of other people. Sometimes that pain might be, uh, might show itself as a crime. And that's not what Eric did per se, but, uh, and, it, but the story that he tells is powerful and he's a fantastic human. I uh, really enjoyed talking with him. Uh, he's the host of the Get Up 8 podcast, uh, uh, where he develops and uh, flushes out all of the ideas around resilient leadership. And I think that is something that resiliency is a buzzword these days. We talk about that during our conversation, but it's important for people to have <clears throat> resilience. It's not going to go away at the end of 2018 just because the buzzword is no longer the thing, we need to be resilient, especially in our profession. We need to be able to be resilient. We have to practice those skills. And Eric will go through his story, his redemption, so to speak. Uh, maybe that's not the right word. His navigating his grief is a better way to say it. To the point where he is now able to guide others. So without uh, further talking from me, here's our guest, Eric Hodgson. Eric, welcome to the squad room. Thanks for being here. Hey, Garrett. Thank you so much for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. This is going to be a unique conversation uh, because the conversation that sparked uh, the invitation for you to come on was was unique. And uh, to give some people 
a little bit of background. We uh, we got to spend some time together recently uh, in Tampa, of all places, <laughs> but at a uh, <laughs> at an event uh, hosted by uh, who I've described to people as a mentor of of, uh, of both of ours, a mutual mentor, a guy who's been on the show actually, Scott Mann, a former uh, retired Green Beret lieutenant colonel. He had an event we were both at, and uh, we got to talking. And you were sharing your story during that event, and really uh, uh, inspired me to try something different with the show. You know, so uh, welcome. I'm really excited that you're here. Uh, you don't Thank have you, a brother. background. You're not a cop, right? You know, and no. uh, never have been. Don't have any connection to the first responder world uh, directly, anyway. So, um, and. That's unique for me, so this is good for me to stretch my boundaries as awesome. well. But you're a fellow podcaster, so uh, and we'll get to that yes. too. So to give people a sense of uh, who you are, um, can you walk us through um, kind of your story? And I don't mean starting like you know back in childhood, but you know right. where are you from? What were you doing? You know, we 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 both know where your story kind of starts, but what were you doing? Uh, you know, as an adult. I appreciate that, Garrett. Um, about five, six years ago, uh, I was uh, in corporate IT, working a nine-to-five job, and I just knew there was something else out there for than just getting up, going to work, coming home, and wash, rinse, and repeat. And uh, an opportunity came up for me to be introduced to somebody who was a Beachbody coach. Uh, and uh, interesting enough that when I randomly saw this person in a clothing store wearing a P90X hat, I went up and asked him, had he done the program? And he told me that he had and that he was now working from home doing that full time. And uh, I told him, well, hey, man, I, I have an interesting story to tell you. I was the very first P90X success story ever. And I, I noticed, Garrett, that you uh, interviewed Tony Horton a few yeah. weeks ago or a uh -huh. few months ago. That was, that's pretty cool. He's a good guy. Uh, but, uh, so I, the opportunity for me to coach kind of came into play and I jumped at it. It just spoke to me. It was almost like one of those taps on the shoulder that said I need to be, you know, helping other people in this way. Mm -hmm. And I started that, I started down that path and things were going pretty well. Um, I entered into uh, a few months after I started, I actually had to enter into a, a custody battle for my 15 year old daughter, Zoe. Um, she was having a hard time. And she had been hospitalized on a few occasions. And this one particular time I picked up Zoe, uh, she was living in a halfway house and I was able to pick her up and bring her home on weekends. So this one weekend I picked her up and brought her back to the house and she was upstairs in her bedroom and she was listening to some music, burning some jasmine incense. And uh, she was applying this really cool henna tattoo on her hand. It had a sun design on it. And if you've ever smelled henna ink, it's, it's got a very acrid smell to it. It's like it's like sit, uh, orange juice and gasoline. It's just gross. You know, it just hangs in the air. But while that ink was drying, I asked her if she wanted to make some kale chips. And she said, sure. So uh, afterwards, we were cleaning up. And she said, Dad, I'm really tired. I want to go to bed. And I love you, pumpkins. I love you too, Dad. I was back at my computer to do some work. And I went upstairs a little while later to say goodnight to Zoe. And when I opened her bedroom door... I could hear Jonathan Frusciante's guitar playing on the stereo and a string of Christmas lights was lit around the perimeter of her room, but she wasn't in her bed. Now, out of the corner of my eye and in the dim light, I could see that she was standing in her closet and I thought she was going to jump out and scare me. I said, Zoe, what are you doing? But she didn't answer me because she wasn't standing in her closet. I had to call 911 
And for the next hour and a half, it's a blur. Uh, five days later, over 900 people came to Zoe's wake. 900 people. I, I, I couldn't tell you how uh, uh, grateful I am for that. And her friends were coming up. Her friend Kelly came up and all she was doing was sobbing. And all I could do was put my arm around her and say, it's going to be okay, sweetie, because Zoe would want you to remember all those good times you had together, right? Another friend, Sarah, came up and said, I'm so sorry, Mr. Hodgson. I don't get it. Zoe was so nice to me and she was always smiling. And all I could say was like, I don't get it either, but it's going to be okay, sweetie. And as more and more people came up to share stories of Zoe with me, to tell me how much that she impacted them, inspired them and gave them hope. And to tell me that they were sorry for my loss. I was sorry for their loss because I knew what we were all going to be missing. You know, her, her smile, her energy, her badass ukulele skills, uh, and really her philosophy of life to just be. But it took me a long time to feel somewhat normal. I wasn't exercising at all, uh, where I was very active previously. Uh, I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating well. I just wasn't myself. And it took even a longer time for it to sink in that Zoe would be so pissed off with me if she knew that I was letting all those good memories from her life stop me from living mine. And I, I knew that I had to make peace with this, that there, I, I did not feel like I needed to stay down on my knees. Yes, it brings you to your knees, but I felt that I needed to make peace with this, which actually gave way to forgiveness, not just of Zoe for taking her life, but of myself for what I perceived I didn't do. And then that made way for gratitude to come into my life and some beautiful things started to happen. I started to see Zoe everywhere. You know, maybe it was her her uh, uh, her her same color hair I would see on another girl. Maybe it was a pair of Chuck T's that I would see somebody wearing. And sometimes it was even a song that came on the radio that she used to sing along to, which I would blast at that point because it just reminded me of her. In Greek, the name Zoe means life. And the greatest lesson that Zoe ever taught me is that we have to rise above the noise of life and when life knocks you down, you got to get back up again. And that, you know, when you're when you're navigating a loss like that, even if it's a child or another loved one, uh, you are are standing at the edge of a chasm, Garrett. You're 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 standing at a you're looking at fog and unknowns and questions that, and everybody has their own set of uh, uh, or their own chasm that they have to navigate. Uh, and a lot of people don't uh, choose to do that. But uh, when I was looking around and seeing Zoe's friends looking at me like, OK, now what the hell do we do? Uh, I knew that uh, we all had to get to the other side of our chasms and to get to that to our better days. And uh, for a couple of years, it really was, um, you know, just kind of navigating step by step, falling down, getting back up, uh, you know, learning something new about Zoe uh, connecting with her friends deeper, building those relationships, amazing kids. In fact, collectively, they all remind me of her. Uh, some of them are really funny as shit, too. So it's just it's, it's again, it's just all these little components that kind of make me feel like Zoe's still here. Um, and it wasn't until about 2015 when I went to a men's a Beachbody men's leadership event in Dallas, Texas, and they brought a speaker up on stage who 
I was slightly familiar with the name only because his brother was a quarterback for the New England Patriots back in the 80s. But the gentleman's name is Bo Eason, who was a former NFL pro himself. And uh, Bo did not tell us a story about how to build our business. He didn't tell us a story about, you know, parenting or or finances. What he told us was a story, a personal story about how when he was uh, nine years old, he had a dream to play in uh, play uh, be the the best safety in the NFL. This was his dream. And when he made the offer for us to come work with him to tell our story, I could I can't tell you how fast I jumped out of that seat and ran to the back of the room to give my slip because I wanted the world to know who Zoe is. And uh, I didn't know which way this was going to go. But just as much as that that uh, tap on the shoulder came when I was in that clothing store and saw that dude up with the P90X hat, this was even more of a tap on the shoulder that that I need to do something that's much bigger than I am and help other people who are stuck in struggle to uh, rise above their noise of life to, so that they may thrive and see the beauty in life again. And that's what I've been doing now for the last three years. You know, I, I think... For someone who's listening, I want to I want to tie this directly to the, the experience of of a cop, right? Of a law, of a law enforcement officer, yes. or even the first responders that are other first responders that are listening. And and then, and then I want to go back into and, and and dig into each of those episodes of your life a little more uh, in depth. Sure. But, you know, to me, I think when I when I hear your story, I parallel that to the challenges that we face. Uh, to the grief that we experience collaterally, you know, we, yes. we often are collateral damage in, uh, or where we receive the collateral damage uh, from someone else's grief. Yeah. And we continue, uh, you know, it doesn't end just at one time. It, it continues and continues and continues. And we take a mm-hmm. uh, 20X sort of uh, brunt force of it. So, yes. So to me, when you talk about, finding opportunities to tell these stories and to uh, kind of guide others out of the grief. To me, that's the quintessential positive thing that a law enforcement officer, a cop can bring to the world Right, is that we have the ability more than almost anybody else in the world. We, we contact more people in a, in a given day than most any other type of, of profession. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And, if I have 10, 15, 20 public contacts throughout the day, if I can learn to tell the story, which is you know my story, but also to connect with people, uh, then that's how we ca- we solve a lot of these issues that we're experiencing today. I, that's that's mm-hmm. my absolute belief. Yeah. So, I mean, that's where I, and that's where when we started talking, I was like, I got I got to get you on so we can mm. we can show that this isn't just about. You know, being in law enforcement isn't just about fighting crime and chasing bad guys. That's the fun part, but, <laughs> you know, but the real work begins w- when it gets tough. Right. You know, and and it is tough, but yeah. that's where we have the most opportunity for our most impact and have our most relevance. So right. take me back and, and give me a little snippet of who Eric was in that corporate job and maybe as a beach body coach. Like, what was your vision of how your life was going to go? Um, I think whenever you're introduced to a new opportunity that lights you up, uh, there is that sense of energy and direction. Mm-hmm. You're almost building a core set of beliefs around uh, or a core set of values around that new endeavor. Mm-hmm. 
and you just throw yourself kind of head first into it. And I had been in IT for 25 years at that point or 22 years. And, and while I, I can do that work, uh, and it lit me up when I was 22 years old, when I got started with it, it, um, it, it started to, I started to feel a little burnt out. Like I just knew that there was something more than working for somebody else and building their dream. I wanted to build my dream. And so the vision that I had was that, uh, it was going to take some time, but that I was going to build this, this health and fitness business up to where I could help other people who are trying to get to a specific destination, uh, through their own health and fitness levels. Uh, what, what can I do to help you? And, but it's interesting, Garrett, that when you are introduced to something like this, um, it's it's a challenge to connect with people if you haven't done that normally. I know I'm in IT, uh, I'm an IT guy by trade, uh, but at, there at no point was communication ever an issue, at least for me. And there's a you know there's a lot of parodies about IT guys. You know, you know, with, oh, yeah, the problem exists between the chair and the keyboard. That's not necessarily <laughs> true. Right. <laughs> so it's it was more of I wanted to help people and I just didn't know how to. So I was trying to learn that as I as I was uh, growing up through uh, the IT ranks, if you will. And, um, you know, it was really important to me that I did connect. My customers were the people in the companies that I worked for. They I was important to build those relationships to make sure that they were getting what they needed so that they could continue on and be as productive as they needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to carry some of that into the coaching world, but it's a different realm at that point because you're now asking people to uh, to trust you with their their health and fitness. Mm-hmm. And people are very touchy about that, you know, and, and I think people are very touchy about a lot of things that are very private to them. Um, and I don't think without any connections, you're, you're, you're kind of banging your head up against a wall and trying to make things work. Mm -hmm. And if people don't trust you, they're not going to talk to you. They're not going to work with you. And I think for law enforcement officers, you guys, uh, you, you are first responders. You guys run into that on the daily whenever you go on calls because everybody's got their walls up right away. Oh yeah. And, and I remember, uh, when I made the call to 911 that night uh, here at the house, and um, uh, there was probably eight or ten police officers in the house that night, and I, they're human. Everybody's human, right? And I remember looking at their faces, and their faces weren't telling me anything positive. They were, you know, doing what they needed to do, um, and their job was to get this situation. Uh, whether you call it under control or what have you, but, you know, get it, get it so that um, they could get Zoe over to the hospital as quickly as possible and, and all that. Um, but it was those, the, the looks on their faces that are still imprinted on my mind, knowing that they knew this was going to suck. Mm-hmm. You know, they knew this was going to suck. It was really, <laughs> it was really one of those, um, I remember walking into the ER that night and, um, it, it like the whole room, this big ER room was just surrounded with people and there were three or four officers off to the off to the right. They still didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if this was something that was self-inflicted. They had to go through that whole process of figuring that out. Right. Uh, yeah. But but they were just looking at me like, uh, yeah, man, this is not good. And and yet the difference was, was that I wasn't going home with my daughter, mm-hmm. but they were going to be hanging up their belt that night after their, their shift. 
And, uh, you know, those, like you're saying, this stuff stays with people. This is not something that is just like, oh, well, that my shift is done. I can go home now. You get, it does, it is personal. It is something that's very deep and, and, uh, very, uh, taxing emotionally. And, and, um, you know, I, if I had to deal with one loss, you guys are dealing with I, countless on so many different levels too. So, you know, it was that part of the story when we were talking, when we were talking about all those police officers in your, in your house and, yes, you know, from your perspective, it, you know, the, the idea of something, uh, suspicious or criminal probably never crossed your mind. Right. Right. And now you are interacting in this moment of well, what is, I'm sure was severe, uh, panic and, and concern, uh, concern's not even the right word. I don't know what's, what's the strongest word you can find for something in that moment. It's just uh shock. Shock. It's yeah. just, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, because when, uh, when I found Zoe, um, I, I had to use a Swiss army knife to cut the string mm-hmm. and to get her down. And, um, and I just tossed the, the Swiss army knife off to the side. Mm-hmm. And when everybody came into my house, I don't, it was weird. It was like, it was quiet. The music was still playing on the stereo, you know, and, and they're working on her. I couldn't hear a word in the room, by the way. I couldn't hear a word. Um, they were just working on her. And and the officers were asking me where the knife was because I told them that I, you know, because, again, they don't know what's going on. They're mm-hmm. trying to get the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And I had already, I guess I'd already picked it up and put it away, you know, because I was just, it was just one of those things. I was just doing this as a matter of fact, I guess. And, um, but, uh, but, yeah, it was just, it was, it's, it's, it is just, you're in shock. You know, you're just mm-hmm. trying to figure out what, I remember pacing around the upstairs of my house, like, what am I doing? And then I'm like, oh my God, they, they want to take me to the hospital now. And they were waiting for me to come downstairs. There was a, an officer in his car parked right out front of my house and he was ready to go. And as soon as I jumped in the car, man, I don't think I've ever done 65 miles an hour down a 25 mile an hour street, but it was 1130 at night. And man, we got down to this hospital in about, about five minutes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember I was asking him the entire way, is she breathing? Is she breathing? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. But every time I asked, it seemed like he accelerated even more. He just wanted me to get there. Mm-hmm. And he had turned his radio way down so I could still hear the clicks of the transmissions. But I couldn't hear what the communication was. So, um, And I don't know if they were talking about the event or some other things. But it was just uh, – it's just – it's weird how those things are kind of burned into your memory. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can't imagine. From my side, it's uh, you know when you you told that story uh, at our at our event, and uh, immediately I was inside of that story with you because mm. I've been I've been the officer going up the stairs and into the room and then trying to mm. you know get a parent to focus and give me some information and get an understanding right. and and also at the same time trying to be sensitive to what's going on, but also uh, making sure that you know medical aid is provided when needed. That's what. It is the most chaotic scene that we can ever possibly go into, and and yeah. and this comes back to another point that I think is really important for for us to understand is that you know we we're like we're blessed, is for for lack of a better term. Like mm-hmm. I am blessed or privileged uh, to be allowed into the worst parts of people's lives and in mm-hmm. the worst moments of their lives. Right. And mm-hmm. their most painful parts of their lives. And, and the energy that I bring to that is, is so important. 
you know, and sometimes uh, it's just it's just really interesting to me how I don't know how many times I've been in that situation, been in that room, and almost had this out of body experience of watching, kind of wondering how I got here, you know, what, mm-hmm. how in my life yeah. put me in this position of being in the stranger's room at the worst moment of their life, mm. and now. I'm expected to do something about it right. <laughs> and uh, becomes a real challenge uh, for us if we're not prepared for those moments. Right. And we'll get to how we prepare for those. But uh, after her, her passing, um, it took you a while, didn't it? To, yeah. to really come out of that. I mean, you, yeah. in the story, I, I don't want people to think that you immediately saw a connection between this and now your purpose of going out right. and teaching people how to be resilient leaders. But um, describe some of that process and, 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 and what was that like? Well, it was, it definitely is a, an interesting experience to try to work through. Mm-hmm. Um, you are trying to make sense of what happened. Mm-hmm. You are trying to ask the question like, Why? Uh, and that's not a question that can be answered because you're never going to know fully why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when the house clears out after about a week, you know, after the services are done and everybody gets back to their life, you're kind of left here with your, your thoughts mm-hmm. and those can serve you or those can, those can bring you down a rabbit hole of, of, of misery and, and, Look, you have to heal. The grieving process is a process. There's no timeline to it. People can't expect that you are going to just feel better in a matter of days or weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people can get through the process much quicker than others. Other people, it takes them years. It doesn't matter. The process is that you – the thing is you have to keep going forward. And the only way that I can describe this process is it's like uh, you wanting to walk a path. And the first of all, this path is not cut in front of you because nobody else that you either know or uh, or that uh, maybe you do know somebody that's gone through it. But this is your path that you have to cut. And you've got a tremendous amount of weight, uh, literal weight on your shoulders with the sadness and the grief and the anger and all those emotions. And as you start to take some steps forward, you fall down often because the, the, the ground beneath you is very unstable. Mm -hmm. You can't get your footing. You know, this brings you to your knees. And every time you stand up with on top of the weight of the loss and you trying to move forward and your footing, you just fall down repeatedly. The the key thing is, is that you have to get back up because every millimeter forward that you go, a little piece of that, uh, that weight comes off of your back and every, every foot that you, uh, traverse, it becomes a little bit more stable and pretty soon you find yourself not waking up in the morning and crying for two to three hours. You're, you, you think about it, you are upset, you might cry. Uh, but you know, now there's, there's other things to do. There's other things. Maybe it's getting back into work, um, to distract you a positive distraction. Uh, maybe it is starting to do some of the things that you weren't doing previously that you've always wanted to do like a a bucket list type of thing. Um, but every step, again, every step forward you take, eventually the weight starts to dissipate considerably 
and the road that you're on now, the path that you're on is much wider and it's more stable and, and you've got some people with you and you're not finding yourself camping out at certain spots for a very long period of time. And I'm talking about the milestones as you're, as you're navigating this process. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are milestones, you know, maybe again, like waking up in the morning and not crying. It's like, wow, okay, I didn't get up this morning and cry. I'm, I'm upset. I miss Zoe. But I'm not going to go through a box of tissues here in the next 20 minutes. Um, and it, it starts – but it takes time. And I think the biggest piece to help you move forward even faster is focusing on other people. And in this case, it was Zoe's friends. Um, we kind of did this mutual check-in. I'd call them. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Well, how are you doing, Mr. Hodgson? I'm, gr- I'm doing okay. I'm not great. I'm doing okay. And – I would give them the opportunity to tell me really how they were doing. And they, because I was Zoe's dad and they had such a tight connection with Zoe, um, they felt comfortable enough for me to hold space for them where they could just tell me whatever it is that they needed to tell me. And, and we would, we would walk this together. That's the thing that's also key is that nobody can walk this path for you. No matter what you go through in life, no matter what challenge comes your way, whether you're a law enforcement officer, whether you're an IT guy, whether you're a janitor, whether you're the fifth most powerful businesswoman in the world, no one can walk these paths for you. You have to do it. Mm-hmm. And, But when you hold space for somebody else, you're walking alongside of them as they're going through their journey and you, you kind of help them with your experiences along the way. And while I was not anywhere further ahead of them in terms of their experience of losing their friend and me losing Zoe as a daughter, um, I, I, they just relied on, on me being able to, to, to help them see the light, even if they couldn't see it, you know, on the other side of all this chasm. So, um, it was, it's a process and it, it just takes any time. There's still some of our friends that are struggling. There's some of our other friends that aren't struggling. They're, they're okay and they're thriving in life again, which is really important. They don't want to just – I'm my encouragement for them is that, look, there's too many of us that just get through life and we struggle through life and we stay in a survival mode. Uh, but that's not living and we weren't meant to live like that. We were meant to actually be doing as much as we can for the time that we're here. And I use the example of Zoe. You know, She was here for 15 years, but that kid left tracks and left imprints on this world and impact on this world at 15 that some people don't leave even when they're 90. So it's, it's really about focusing on, on the, that impact of, that you can make on others. Mm-hmm. And that really helps the process as you move through it. I want to dive into something you just said because this is a recent revelation to me. Sure. In how it applies. But explain to people what holding space means and then how – you find best to be able to do that for somebody? Mm, that's a great question. So there's two things that I think people look for whenever they're dealing with something that they're struggling with. They're either looking for a beacon or they're looking for somebody to hold space for them. And a beacon is really a guide. It, they, they show you the way, they uh, walk the way, uh, and they go the way. But uh, as somebody that holds space for you, is they, they walk hand in hand with you uh, as for as long as you need it, whenever you need it, without doing the work for you and without judgment. They're just there implicitly waiting to, to be your resource uh, for, for healing. Um, and, and through their own experiences, they, uh, it's, 
it's just a it's a it's a it's not a comfort zone as much as it is as a comfort uh, a comfort for your heart. It mm-hmm. it helps take that heartache and turn it into a heart song mm-hmm. when you're walking with somebody when they're holding space for you. You know, I think in my exploration of this, it's uh, it's giving somebody permission. In a lot, mm-hmm. you know, it's giving somebody permission to grieve. To, yes, to be, and it's giving yourself permission to be uncomfortable with it, because <laughs> yeah. in order to <laughs> be there to hold that space, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, um, but you're giving someone permission to to grieve and to work at their pace, right? Yes, um, and. I've found in our work that that is another one of those opportunities that we have in these situations where uh, one individual officer can be there in the middle of a chaotic scene and even then can institute and create and clear a little bit of space for this person and let the, Mm -hmm. and just hold it for him. You know, in some ways I think the officer that drove you to the hospital was doing that for you. I I had a, I had a death investigation this week where uh, a nice a nice woman's uh, elderly mother passed unexpectedly. Um, mm-hmm. Not incredibly, not I mean, old, but you know, not expected. And it and she was in shock, and she mm-hmm. had a lot of questions, and she kind of went into one of those modes you see in some people where it was immediately the to do list. You know, okay, mm-hmm. well, this has happened, and she's sort of ramping up her panic. Uh, about it by trying to figure out, well, what mortuary do I choose and what kind of casket and um, mm. what kind of service do I need to do? And, and all these decisions within the first 30 minutes of, of a death, of a major death in her life, right? Mm. And just going to her and just explaining to her that it's going to be okay. Yeah. And you don't have to do any of that right now. Just be here and let me know what you need. And here's what I want to give you, my resources from my agency to help you. But, you know, just... Let's, let's just slow down for a minute and just, you know, right. breathe it in. And uh, it's extremely difficult to do. It's extremely awkward. I probably screw it up more times than I than I succeed at it. But that human connection part of our job, I think when you're able or to even just try and do that for somebody, we can give somebody that first step towards uh, uh, coming back to, well, you never come back to, but I mean to reestablishing that footing that you're talking yeah. about. Um, can I interject something please, real no, quick? No, please, no, yeah, no. So yeah. you said, you know, you're not interjecting. Uh, by the way, you're the guest, so this is that's the. Whole <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on, man. Let me just. No, just <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you said, you know, you probably screwed up more than than not. Uh, I can tell you from experience that there's no way you can screw it up when you're there for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Your presence. Um, I think a lot of people, when you're going through a process like this. They're like, call me, let me know if you need anything, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and, and support a lot of times right now is just a text away from somebody. It's like, okay, good. I got that off my back. I'm, I'm, you know, go back to my life. Mm-hmm. But when you truly ask how somebody else is doing, when you, when you say, uh, you know, how, when you ask how they're doing, when you say, um, I'm going to be available uh, at any time of the day for you and, and I'm not going to wait for you to call me. I'm going to check in until you tell me to stop and, it, it, it's not a pain in the ass when that happens to people that are going through something like that. They, that's one of the better ways to even hold space for somebody else is to make yourself present and available in whatever capacity works for that other person. 
And sometimes it might need to be a little adjusted in terms of getting it straight and see what they actually need. Sometimes they need that beacon. Sometimes they need somebody to hold space for them. But but I think by saying what you did uh, to that woman, um, you know, just, you know, slow down. Let's figure it out. You know, this is a process. And that was probably the best thing you could have done. You couldn't you had the option not to say anything. You know, I don't think you're obligated to say anything. So by you stepping into that arena, by saying that to her, I think that that. You, you didn't screw that up, so. Well, I appreciate the perspective, and, and that that helps. Actually, that's that's quite helpful. When I graduated from the academy, uh, I went to our equipment room to get the rest of my gear—the stuff I didn't need in the academy, but now I needed when I was on patrol. And they handed me an ill-fitting, awkward, and extremely painful riot helmet. This helmet was probably older than I was, uh, and it was probably and it was something that had probably lasted several careers of the people who had worn it before me. And it was sweat-stained, and it literally was like Vietnam-era quality inside uh, padding. And it was horribly uncomfortable. And I've been in a few incidents in my career in which I had to deploy that helmet. And never once was I comfortable or most certainly confident in it. It was heavy, it was bulky, and it left me with a lasting headache if I wore it for more than a few minutes. I wanted a helmet I could trust, but, like most of you, I had a hard time spending like $1,000 or more on a helmet that I might never need. But that's the problem, isn't it? I may never need my ballistic vest, but I still wear it every day. Well, about a year ago, I got introduced to a company named Hardhead Veterans. It's an app name for a veteran-owned company that makes ballistic helmets. The founders come from the special operations community, and their goal is to make the world a safer place for cops. Several members of the Hardhead Veterans staff are actually active-duty police officers themselves. They reached out, and we started talking about the challenges of policing in today's environment, our equipment needs, and what it's like to be a cop today. They know that we don't make a lot of money, and that it's hard for us to decide how to spend our uniform allowance, if we even get one, and that most departments are not even outfitting their officers with ballistic helmets. They're simply giving them riot helmets without any protection. So that's where Hardhead Veterans decided they were going to focus their small business, making top quality helmets at a real reasonable price that cops can afford. They use high-end DuPont Kevlar fibers made here in the U.S., and their helmets not only meet NIJ standards for level 3A armor, they exceed them. They're so confident in their helmets that they publish all this ballistic data on their website at hardheadveterans.com. Now, I got my own Hardhead Veterans helmet a few months ago, and the experience I had is the reason this ad even exists. From cutting the tape off the box to getting the fit dialed in onto my head, it literally took me probably 40-45 seconds. It was that quick. A few clicks of the padding system and the chin strap, and I was good to go. With my last helmet, the one that the department gave me, I spent, I think, 40 minutes and about $100 buying an aftermarket padding system that I had to wedge in there and uh, cut pieces off because it just didn't fit. And though it made the helmet softer, it still was tight. That's not the case here. The helmet's really light, too, and in the above-ear models come with all the modern attachment adapters that allow you to strap on NVGs or comm systems. And for those of you in SWAT assignments, this is really a perfect helmet. Everything you need to operate without the $1,000 or $1,200 price tag. Their helmets come with a 10-year warranty, and they offer a bulk purchase discount, so if you're in charge of purchase, purchasing at your department, make sure they know that we sent you over. For anyone who wants to purchase a helmet on their own, use the code SQUADROOM, all one word, to get $20 off. Check them out at hardheadveterans.com, and use that coupon code SQUADROOM to get $20 off your purchase. All right, back to the show. You, you took this, uh, this event in your life, and, I mean, you... 
it's hard to imagine a more um, impactful moment in someone's life, but then to take that and completely shift your your life's purpose mm-hmm. as a, as a result, and then that's not yeah. that's that itself isn't uncommon, but there's a lot of courage in that too. And what at, you know, once that grieving period, that initial grieving period, came to a close, yes, and you decided to use this rather than get used by it. Mm-hmm. What was what was the path that you saw forward for yourself? It, it, I think that, um, that I think it was that first event that I signed up for with Boeson mm-hmm. that really opened up my eyes to what is possible to help other people. Uh, you know, I I wanted to tell Zoe's story in a way that wasn't dumping. I wanted to do it in service of others, so that if somebody was, I don't want anybody else to feel like this, mm-hmm. Garrett. You know, I don't I don't want somebody to go through uh, a loss of a loved one and feel like they've got no life ahead of them. And I think far too many people find themselves just mired in that struggle for years at a time. And and I just felt like the way through this, the way that uh, I could get in uh, to, to uh, help other people was to start with Zoe's story. And, and then it started to grow from there. I mean, telling a, a three-minute story about how uh, what I, you know, my loss of Zoe and standing back up again and, and what Zoe would want me to be doing. And, and uh, I feel like I'm picking up her torch in terms of her care for other people uh, and applying it to what I'm doing right now. And, and it took me 44 years to figure out my purpose, mm-hmm. you know, that and it was that tap on the shoulder moment from from losing Zoe to make me realize that I think I was on the right path as becoming a coach. Mm-hmm. But um I think after this event happened with Zoe, it just really made me aware that I am here to help people to to walk with them through whatever challenge or struggle it is that they're having in life. And it doesn't matter what your profession is, that it, it life comes at us. Mm-hmm. You know, curveballs come at us all the time. And and we have to find a way to not just get through that, but actually come out on the other side of it with with some uh, with lessons learned and to teach other people. So would you, that's what you're doing now. Um, you started with a book about this uh, this experience, right? Tell us yes. about that. So the book, uh, thanks. Uh, the book is called A Sherpa Named Zoe, Z O I, and I started writing it in November of 2016, and uh, through many hours of isolation and writing and. Uh, coming uh, home from work and writing, waking up at 5 a.m. and writing it, it was, it became a labor of love. It was telling Zoe's story, but also the few years since uh, she died, what I did to help stand back up, help myself stand back up and help others around Zoe uh, stand back up as well. And uh, it was, uh, it's interesting that when you write a book of this nature, one, you're reliving the story over again because you want to make sure that you're you're telling it in, in the service of others. Uh, but it's it's also a, a teaching point as well because it's causing you to go to the depths of your of your okay. What did I actually learn here? Mm-hmm. You know, what did I learn? Like one of the questions I I write about in the book is like, how do I know Zoe is okay? And I recalled an experience where I had a, a meditation. Uh, and where I was meditating and I felt like I connected with Zoe's energy 
And she's like, dad, I am more than okay. And so that, that it shifts. Um, it's like one of those questions that you have to answer. And once you get it answered, it's, it's not as though it's ever fully resolved, uh, from a standpoint of the loss, but it, it's, it's, it's really enough to help you kind of move on to the next milestone in your healing process. And, and that's what this book serves to do is to help be a guide Mm -hmm. uh, for you. And I felt like Zoe was my guide growing up uh, when she was growing up. And, and even after she, she died, I, she's still my guide. And what do you think? uh, It was just, that was the drive behind it. What do you think is the, um, like if someone's going through something right now and they're trying to figure out where they are in the spectrum of their, mm-hmm. their path forward, is there is there a step one in terms of like turning the corner and moving forward? Is there a have you found a consistent uh, moment where someone has moved from grief through acceptance to to taking that step on solid ground? Yes, uh, I think that there's. I think the first thing is is making peace with what happened. Mm. Um, it doesn't happen to you. It happens for you, I believe, uh, as, as a life that. lesson in some way. It's a shitty life lesson, of course, but um, but any challenge in life can feel really shitty. Uh, yeah. But making peace with it that, okay, there's nothing I can do about this. Uh, adjusting your mindset to know that, okay, I'm here. Now what's next? And I think that's where it moves into uh, forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You do have to forgive uh, another person for uh, something that that you may not feel like they did to you, but you have to forgive that as as a piece of the puzzle here, uh, and and you have to forgive yourself too. Mm-hmm. And I think forgiving yourself is probably more important than anything probably because we too. Ha- we tend to to take on a lot of 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 uh, not anxiety, but we take on a lot of of energy that and self doubt and. And I'm not good enough. I didn't do enough. I wasn't good enough to be her dad, you know, and that's why she didn't stay. You have to you have to make peace with that. You have to forgive yourself for what you perceive you didn't do. And then I believe that opens up your uh, your life to gratitude. And when you start being grateful for what is in your life, Mm -hmm. um, more good energy, more good uh, days come your way, more consistently good days come your way. And. And the gratitude is something that I practice daily. Um, and well, I think once I started to have gratitude in my life, now I felt like I could say, okay, now what's next? Now how do I move on to that point where I'm not just standing up but really living life the way that Zoe would want me to be living life? And and I think that consists of, of uh, framing your mindset in a way that, uh, again, is like, okay, uh, this isn't happening to me. This is happening for me. You start doing things intentionally. You start living life intentionally. Uh, for me, it was going to these uh, storytelling events and writing Zoe's story. It was traveling. It was seeing things with my two eyes that I hope I can say and show Zoe and tell about when we're reunited. It was uh, it was doing some more uh, work with Zoe's friends. It was, but it was being intentional about it, not passive. Mm-hmm. And then I think the, 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 the last step is to f- f- uh, f- form your core values. You know, what is your what brings energy and direction to your life? And this is also your belief system. So your beliefs, all of these things are it's a shift. It's not something that happens uh, overnight. It's a slow shift. 
think of it like a regular wound. When you hurt yourself, it takes time to heal. You have the scar tissue is stronger than the regular tissue. And so you have to give yourself that time to heal. And, and if you know the way, you go the way. And I think along the way, you can heal faster when you do help others. So I got, I, I want to dig into each of those a little bit because I think there's some sure. important things that are, that are relatable to anybody. And the first one, as, as you were talking, and I, I was thinking, as you're saying about forgiving others, I'm thinking about the forgiveness of yourself too. And you, then you hit on it. How, what was that process like? Did it take someone else telling you you needed to forgive yourself or was <laughs> it uh, like, like, because it's it's I think it's much easier to forgive someone else than it is to forgive ourselves, right? We hang on yeah. to that. No, it wasn't. It was. Uh, it, this was. It was an experience that I had uh, about a year after Zoe died. I was stuck in a routine, Garrett, where I would get off the train in the town that I live in, and it's about a two mile drive uh, from the commuter rail to where I live, and. I was in this routine of getting in the car, driving about a mile down the road, and I would just start crying. And I would be begging Zoe for forgiveness. I'm so sorry, Pumpkins. I, I wish I was a better dad for you. I wish that I would have saved you that night. So many things kind of that I was saying. And that went on for a while. But I remember one day I got off the train, and the second I closed the door to my car, I broke down. So now I had a two-mile drive with traffic on this day particularly where – uh, I was just I went right into this mode of asking for forgiveness. And by the time I got about a mile down the road, I was I couldn't even see out the my eyes were just so swollen. I was just crying so hard. And, and, and it was as if Zoe was sitting in the seat next to me and I heard her say, Dad, I'm OK. Jeez, cut it out. Right. And in that moment, I kind of snapped out of it and my tears kind of turned into laughter and, and it was one of that realization point of like, oh, my God, you're right. What am I doing? What am I doing here? So this is that was the moment where I realized that Zoe would be pissed off with me if I was, uh, you know, taking those memories from her life and not living mine. Mm. And um, the very next day when I got in the car, uh, I did something different. I, I shifted the uh, my mindset I immediately to, uh, you know, what I'm going to celebrate this uh, ride home now from now on. Here's what I'm going to do. So I turned on the radio station that Zoe would listen to, which was a alternative station. Her favorite bands were Nirvana, Foo Fighters, Red Hot Chili Peppers, super big fan of those guys. And, and, and I, you know, I kid you not when, uh, three songs came on the, uh, on that radio station from those three bands in the time that it took me to drive home. And I had my windows open and I was blasting. I just didn't care. And it felt so damn good, man. It mm. was just so that's, that for me, that was a moment of forgiveness. That's when I gave myself permission to forgive myself. Mm -hmm. And we have to give ourselves permission for that. You know, and if we, if we tie, if we reverse the, the tables here, if we turn the tables and we say, okay, fine, what if it was me that died and Zoe was here? Would I want her to be driving home from school every day upset and crying? No, we wouldn't. I would want her to be living. So it was that, it was kind of looking at that from an opposite perspective as well. Mm-hmm. And then with developing gratitude, that's something we talk about quite a bit on the mm. show. What's what's your process for that? Do you have a daily practice that you do, or uh, like well, yeah. you mentioned meditation? But what's your practice on gratitude? So for a while there, I was using this journal called the Five Minute Journal. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. 
And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, yeah, but I've, it's, I've you, know, that. you practice gratitude in the morning and the evening. And then more recently, I've shifted over to what's called a self-journal where uh, I will you, – you're supposed to write down three things you're grateful for in the morning, but also your daily planner. And then at the end of the day when you're doing your daily reflection, there's three more points where you can put in some gratitude, three things that you're grateful for for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. And I what I find, Garrett, is that I'm repeating on a daily basis the same things that I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they shift, but they're that impactful in my life. I'm grateful for Zoe, Christos, and Armina. Those are my three kids. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for my dog, Beans. I'm grateful for my home. I'm grateful for my health. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for the universe. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for – and I usually leave that last one for whatever that day just comes at me. It could mm-hmm. be that I had a fantastic uh, uh, you know, a fantastic breakfast. I'm grateful that I had a good <laughs> breakfast this morning. You know? So it, it, it's just and, – and I can tell you that that gratitude is like – that is the biggest gift that you can give yourself mm-hmm. in a situation like this is gratitude because uh, it's not tangible but – what you're doing when you express gratitude uh, for yourself and what's in your life, it is the seeds that eventually start to sprout flowers that grow around the crater of this impact of your life. And man, I can tell you right now, there's a damn beautiful garden growing around that crater right now. Mm, that's great. And so I'm, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that opportunity to, to, uh, to practice that gratitude every day. I use the same journal. This, uh, I think if you go to Amazon, I think it's best self journal, but, uh, mm-hmm. I'm on my second one too. And I like how it combines. Cause I'm a kind of, I, I know I have a phone that I could do anything I want, but I need to write like I, something about pen to paper to me is, yeah. is more impactful and you, it ha, it's slower. Uh, and you get to sit with it a little bit more. Right. Um, but I, I like those journals and I found like with your, like your story about writing the three, three things you're grateful for. I was doing the same thing for a while myself and kind of felt silly that I kept saying the same things over and over. So what I did was try, uh, try to do something that was completely different, right. And and Mm. minor. And, um, like it was like last night was like, I was, I was great. I was grateful that the ice maker was working in the fridge again. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a, it's a little moment, but it's a pause to, to even little things right that like that. Right. Like, like, uh, and, and, and it's funny cause I think we sometimes feel like we have to be, uh, have to show gratitude for those big things all the time, but we can be mm-hmm. gracious. We can, uh, we can show gratitude or feel gratitude for, you know, the fact that light traffic on the way to work and now you're, yeah. you're not feeling as, as, as tense or gratitude for, you know, your Amazon delivery showing up on time. Cause you were looking forward to that book. It, it can yeah. be silly things. Yeah, but, but it when you matter, though. when you allow yourself to feel gratitude for silly things, um, I have I have found me personally, um, your your attitude improves. You, you feel lighter, and you bring a bit more light into the world. And it's yeah. silly; people may not buy it, but I think it's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you just hit on a good point with that, Garrett. You said you know you feel lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why as you're walking that path through any challenge that you're dealing with in life, mm-hmm. uh, the more gratitude you feel, the more that that reduces the weight on your shoulders mm-hmm. that you're feeling. And if you think about your day, you know, we, we are faced with so much, uh, as our mentor Scott Mann says, churn in the, in the, in our society where you turn on the news and it's, you know, the, somebody fighting with somebody else and it's all doom and gloom when you look at it on the news. But 
if you look at the reality of your life, uh, 99% of your day is usually pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you stub your toe and it's a split second of your entire day, yeah, it's going to sting for a little while. But, but is really that's the worst thing that's happened to you today, and you your the rest of your day is actually okay. You know, and and yeah, there's some times when things do come at us, but that's why it's important to to be resilient. So uh, and train while the sun is still shining. So when the clouds come, and they will come. Mm-hmm. You will be able to to get through that. You won't get knocked down. You'll get bumped. And resiliency is is not putting on a suit of armor to block yourself away from the world. It's actually putting on a uh, putting a you know getting a shield in front of you that protects the 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 protects the unit. Mm-hmm. You know, it protects the 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 people around you as well. And uh, it's just a it, it helps you withstand whatever comes your way. I think the training and I think it is training and it's certainly a practice because you can't be it's not perfection. But when you practice gratitude, yes. when those bad things happen, your mindset shifts and then you sometimes can be grateful for that negative experience, you know, and mm. I think you can in good moments recognize that there's opportunity even in some of these low moments there's an opportunity to grow there's an opportunity to learn how to do something better Mm -hmm. Uh, there's an opportunity to test some of your resilience and test some of your practices it's an opportunity to test your patience yeah Uh, so i have i have found and i'm not successful with this every day of course but i have found that when you practice the gratitude those things start to become opportunities and not roadblocks yeah i felt the same way um I'm grateful that I got to be Zoe's dad for even the 15 years that she was here. Mm. And I'm also grateful that I have this greater purpose that's now uh, been exposed, if you will, through my work and in, in, in doing these other events, living my life uh, and, and pursuing this greater purpose. Uh, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to do that uh, and hopefully impact other people's lives like you guys impact lives on, on a daily basis with your work, you know, whether where people realize it or not, uh, there are times when we need that protection and guardianship and we may not even know it. Mm-hmm. And for, for, I know that if I ever have an issue and I need to call our town's, uh, police force, they'll be out here in minutes and I live on the edge of town, but they'll be out here and they'll take care of what needs to get taken care of. And, 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 and I'm grateful for that, you know, to have that around. Um, and those are things that I think that um, that when, you know, when we're faced with challenges, sometimes we don't remember to be grateful for what it is that we do have. Mm-hmm. And, and it can kind of keep us uh, keep us down on our knees. But uh, we practice gratitude. It reduces the weight and we stand back up again. I want to go back to that ride you took to the hospital real quick because I think this is yeah. the important crux of our first conversation about this because you're, you're talking about this story that I as I said earlier have now put myself in because I I've experienced that on my on the on the mm. uniform side of that and I asked you if you've ever contacted uh, those officers after the fact uh, because I thought your story and then your your path towards resilience and then you getting up and standing up again was such a powerful message. And I thought, man, 
I would love for somebody in that situation to come back to to me and mm-hmm. and and pat me on the back or give me a hug and and tell me how they've moved through that. What what would you tell the officers, those 8 to 10 officers that were in your house that night? What would you if you could have a cup of coffee or just speak to them at briefing, what would you be what would you say? Uh first of all, I would thank them for being there uh when during that moment um as hard as it was for them to see Zoe, to see me, to, to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in a mode of help at that particular moment. Everybody's adrenaline's going, the, you know, all that. Uh, so I would thank them for being there. Um, but I would also encourage them to, to know that, that, uh, you know, things like this happen in life, but, uh, that there's forgiveness that you can, uh, you can give to um, yourself to move forward through it. Uh, I don't know how many officers actually hold on to something like this for a long period of time, but uh, to forgive themselves that they did everything possible in that moment to help, even if it wasn't a successful help, you know, in, in their mind of, in terms of like the person living. Um, but, but to actually be, to I'd pat them on the back. You guys did. I would tell these guys, look, you guys did everything in your power to help me that night. And you did, you did, you know, you got me to the hospital. You, you got Zoe out of the house and down to the hospital. You, you, you were there, uh, to console me. The first person to tell me, I'm sorry for your loss. were the two detectives in town. Um, and as hard as it was for them, they stepped into the arena and they did that. So, I'm I'm grateful that that they were present that night um, and uh, that, hey, you know, I stood back up again. And if you run into situations in your life where you feel like you're this is really tough, I don't know if I can get through this. Just know that there is a light on the other side of your chasm, too, Mm -hmm. and that you can get there. I think when we first spoke to this idea that you're okay, you know, you you made it out, you made it through. And we 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 might be involved with you for five minutes or maybe for a couple of hours, but then mm-hmm. we move on. Like you say, we go, we hang up our gun belt, we go back to our family and the next shift, it starts all over again with a whole right. new set of actors. And we never get a chance to do a lot of that follow up with people or to encounter someone after the fact like that. And we certainly wouldn't be appropriate for us to seek it out. So I think it's an amazing opportunity to tell these, because I think any cop with any time on has experienced being there for a tra- someone's trauma, uh, mm-hmm. like that in in their official capacity, right? And uh, and there's plenty of cops who've done this in their personal lives too, but we never get an opportunity to hear from the people that we interact with that they're going to be okay. And I think that's yeah. uh, like you say. I think we hold on to the, the calls where we did do as much as we could have, or yeah. you know, the hindsight that we should have done something different. Uh, yeah. Those are the ones that'll stick with you, and to know yeah. that. We are, uh, you know, we really are walking this life with you in, in, in mm-hmm. parallel, in parallel ways. And that I just love this. When we talk, I just love this idea that you got out of it. Okay. You're doing, and, and in fact, you're now thriving. Yes. So part of that thriving now is, uh, y- your book, you're speaking yes. on these things and, and developing resilient leaders. And you are also now the host of your own podcast. Yes. Uh, so explain the title and then talk to us about what that's about. Oh, thank you, Garrett. Um, so about two months ago, 
I launched a podcast called the Get Up Eight Podcast, and it's a play on a quote, a Japanese proverb: "Fall down seven times, get up eight. And uh, it's it's there to unpack the challenges and struggles that do come at us in life, regardless of what those might be. Mm-hmm. And and the guests and I will help you build resilience so that um, no matter what comes your way, uh, you won't just survive it; you'll thrive in the face of it. And um, we started to tackle some topics that are outside of what I figured we would be talking about. For example, last week I had a gentleman on who is an electrical contractor and, uh, as a homeowner, um, you know, we, we tend to put our guards up just so much like, uh, like law enforcement officers and, and people do when you have a vendor or a contractor coming to your house, how often are you like, okay, is this guy going to rip me off? What are they going to say? What are they get that type of thing. And as the contractor, they want to make sure that they're doing their job that they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it's not often met with, with, uh, clarity and connection. Sure. And so bridging those gaps between, um, not just the vendors and the contractors, but the people. It's a two-way street. It's not just one or the other. Mm-hmm. So we talked about that on, on one of the episodes, and I've talked to other people about uh, losses that they've had in their life, and uh, I've talked to uh, a former guest of yours, Traver Baum, mm-hmm. about uh, you know, when, when life you know, comes at you in a certain way, how are you bringing yourself back? And Traver's story is obviously very powerful, and you guys know that one. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's uh, I'm enjoying doing this. I'm enjoying exploring different topics about building resilience, and and seeing where it goes. So that's been going on for a couple months. My uh, a question I, I typically ask everybody, and then we'll we'll get to how people can track you down. Um, but I like this question, and it's because it's it's not often a forum, especially for a quote unquote regular civilian. Um, mm-hmm to to speak directly to law enforcement but this is a good opportunity so the question here is um if you could teach every cop in the country one thing what would Mm -hmm. it be wow that's a great question uh if i could teach them one thing is to make deeper connections with the people they come in contact with and that's a big that's a big ask But it's also a big teaching point because in those deep connections, Garrett, um, trust builds. Uh, Whether you talk to that person or not, you are building a little relationship with them. And and when you have that trust and you have that connection and you have that relationship, uh, your the interaction, uh, even if if it comes around again in the future, is going to be that much better. So that's what I would teach. Oh, that's a great one. I like that one a lot. Awesome. All right, so where can people find you on social media? Where do they find your podcast? Thank you, brother. Uh, so the podcast is called just uh, getup8podcast.com. On social media, I'm on Facebook uh, at getup8. And on Instagram, it's uh, Eric B. Hodgden. Um, and I have a website that's erichodgden.com. And we'll uh, put all the links for your socials and your website and your podcast we'll put all those in the show notes for this episode too and people thank you go to appreciate those. that yeah of course they can then, go to uh, the squadroom.net for your episode and they'll find those stats. so you hit with something else oh no I, was, I, I just thank you so much for having me on today this is uh fantastic you guys are uh i appreciate all the work you guys do and and i appreciate being able to come on and share zoe with you this is a great conversation man resilience yeah. is something that we is it's kind of a buzzword these days 
Yeah. And it's almost annoying because this is something that we've always needed. And in a yeah. lot of ways, it's, it's, it's important because it is so important that the more time we can talk about it, the better. But my fear is that, you know, like 2017 was the year of mindfulness. Mindfulness, everything. Everything was about mm-hmm. mindfulness. And that's important. Absolutely. We have tons of topics about that. This year seems to be a lot of resilience. And it's going to be on people like you uh, to carry that torch forward and make sure that in 2019 we don't forget about it. You know, yes. and that we don't move on to a new thing because I think my experiences have been that when you are resilient, uh, all things come all things come to you during those times in your life. Yes. And so uh, I'm expecting you to continue to help us carry that torch forward and teach as many of these people out there how to be resilient leaders as they can possibly be. So, Eric, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Garrett. I really appreciate it, brother. All right, thanks for listening to The Squad Room. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. It helps us spread the word about the show. Another thing you can do, grab the phone out of someone's hand. Grab their phone. Don't do a robbery, but gently ask them if you can borrow your phone. Have them subscribe to the show. Tell them about it. Send them a link to one of the episodes. Help us pass the word and help us get this momentum going. Nobody is coming to save us. It's on us. We have to be the ones to take control and, uh, and, and ownership of our lives and decide today to be a leader in our community, in our department, in our family, in our church, wherever that may be. We have to make a conscious effort to decide to be that person. And the, we need help. We need to recruit people. We need to get people on our side. And we do that by spreading the word of the show and the message of the guests that we have here. To keep up to date, you can text the squad room, all one word, to 44222 to get signed up for our mailing list directly from your phone. Uh, you can also, again, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the squad room or join our Facebook group. Search uh, squad room Facebook group and it'll come up. It's closed for law enforcement personnel, people who are aspiring to be in law enforcement or law enforcement supporters. I vet everybody. And it's a good chance to ask questions and engage in some good conversation. So I want to take a moment to thank each of you who uh, are new to the show also for listening. We have a lot of new listeners, and I appreciate the enthusiasm you've brought and the uh, excitement you've brought at the topic. It is definitely motivating to hear uh, that this is connecting with you. Uh, one thing I didn't mention is my email address. You can always reach me, Garrett, at thesquadroom.net. That's two R's and two T's. If you want to reach out and have a conversation, have a question, and I will do my absolute best to get back to you as soon as possible. All right, until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.